Welcome to the Dwelling Place Church audio podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's message. We pray God speaks to you today through this message and through his word. For more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org. Now, it's time to listen to this week's message. Well, what an amazing opportunity we have to, uh, to come together and worship, and also just, uh, just an amazing kickoff last week to this brand new message series for December, and uh, I'm really, really excited about all that God will speak to our hearts and our lives, and you know, when I was there in worship a few moments ago, and just reminded again of just, um, just the power of prayer, just the fact that we have access uh, to be able to pray to the Father and ask the Father. The Bible says if we ask according to his will, he grants us. He, he performs that. In fact, the scripture said if we come into agreement on earth, considering a thing, he said, touching one thing, that the Father in heaven will grant that request. And, um, and I know that sounds so cliche, but listen, if you are in this room today and you're facing an insurmountable obstacle, an insurmountable problem, a relational difficulty, maybe you've been in a place where your heart has been hurt or maybe you've been damaged in some way, pray. It sounds so cliche, doesn't it? Pray, but, but that's the reality. When you pray, God obligates himself to hear the cries of his children. And, uh, and I was just thinking as we were worshiping just the beauty of what Christmas is all about and the invasion of God in our time and space. And um, I'm just so grateful for what God spoke out of this uh, pulpit last week as Pastor Chad kicked off our series called Original Christmas Playlist. And I want to continue in week two of that today. If you didn't receive a message card when you came in, you can raise your hand, and somebody there in the back will serve you. And um, that'll be a, a great help as you, you follow along with us at multiple passages that I want to look at this morning. Uh, I want you to go with me, if you have your Bibles, to Luke chapter 1, if you will. Luke chapter 1. We're going to begin reading in just a few moments at verse 46. Luke chapter 1, beginning at verse 46. We're going to read through this passage we're going to read two other scriptures today in our hearing, and uh, I believe God is going to speak to our lives. I um, have the task or assignment today of preaching to you from Mary's song. Last week, we looked at Zachariah's song. Zacharias, maybe your Bible translate, but Zachariah's song, the father of John the Baptist. Today, we're going to look at Mary's song, and we're also again going to look at the angel's song and also Simeon's song. But when we start in Luke chapter 1, I... Spent last uh, Christmas, if you were part of Dwelling Place last December, we did a series called Carols, and I preached for three weeks in a row on Mary. Now, there is, um, there is quite a bit of material in the New Testament on Mary, but not enough to do more than three weeks in a row, it seems like. And so, I was spending a lot of time in this passage last year, and I just want to make a confession. I did not preach out of this passage because, to be honest with you, I didn't know how really to make something out of it. And you're going to see how deafening this is. This, is. this is surprising how Mary begins to give praise and exaltation and magnification to the Lord. But, but as I was reading through this passage again, something really struck my heart. And it's not just what we're going to see in this passage, but we're going to see Mary's song continue in subsequent stanzas through her life. So God began to ignite something in me that um, is very, very simple, but I think if we'll allow it to really sink in today, if you'll, with me over the next few moments, wade, not wait, but wade into how deep this is, and, and if you'll just give yourself permission to not only spiritually, but emotionally sink into the reality of that which we're about to see, then I think what can happen is we'll leave here today, and not only will our behavior be different, but our patterns of thinking will be different, our confidence in God's love for us will be different, and ultimately our lives will be changed, and I believe that's what God has for us today, I really do believe. Luke chapter 1, I'm again reading in verse 46. The Bible said, And Mary said, My soul glorifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful and looked on the humble estate of his servant. That's herself. For behold, she said, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. Christmas is a generational blessing, not just for one. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy 
is his name. Notice the praise of Mary, verse 50. She continues on. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. For he has shown strength with his arm. And the Bible says he has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. For he has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estates. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. Look at the juxtaposition of two different types of people that are found in the world. And he's helped his servant Israel. Now she switches to a great nation in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Thank you, Mary, for that wonderful, wonderful song. Now, if you'll jump with me. We're going to move on to another passage, Titus chapter 2, beginning in verse 11. I want to read this. Titus chapter 2, verse 11, 12, 13, and 14. And I want you to see the ultimate fulfillment of Mary's song as Jesus has entered the world. For the grace of God has appeared. Everybody say grace. Bringing salvation for all people, it trains us to renounce ungodliness. It trains us to renounce worldly passions. It trains us, that is grace does, not more legalism, but grace trains us to live self-controlled. It trains us to live upright and godly lives in the present age. What are we doing? We're waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great and God, our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. Notice this, verse 13 and 14. And he says, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. Everybody say that with me. Say, a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. And finally, the final passage, a very short snapshot, John chapter 2, verse 1 through 5. And on the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. That's the same mother that we just read her song. And Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. And when the wine ran out, when the alcohol was gone, the mother of Jesus said to Jesus, went to her son and simply said, they have no wine. In all too familiar fashion like moms do, she doesn't give a command or request or even just makes a statement and is hoping that he can read between the lines. This is what moms do. And Jesus Jesus said to her, woman, now you never call your mom woman unless you're God. What does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Let's pray. Father, thank you that today we don't have an exchange of information, but in these next few moments we'll experience your love and we'll forever be changed. In Jesus' name. And everybody said? Now, my wife loves Christmas carols, really does. They're, they are, in fact, what makes the Christmas season so special, right? After all, they're memorable. It's probably true for all of us. We all like, in some context, some Christmas carols. The tunes and the words of Christmas carols remind us of what the season is all about, right? They, they remind us of growing up. How many of you, when you listen to a certain song, it reminds you of the very songs you sang at a Christmas candlelight service for your, with your family? Or maybe it reminds you of the, the twinkling lights on the Christmas trees you sit there with hot chocolate. Or maybe it reminds you of sitting on the couch in the living room and going over the Christmas story on Christmas Eve. When we listen to Christmas carols, it reminds us of memories. In fact, Christmas carols are one of the things that make Christmas Christmas. Do you know that such songs praising the Savior's birth were always a part of the Christmas celebration? Such songs actually began to be sung before the Savior was even born. Jesus is not even born when Mary sings the first Christmas song. One of the songs is sung by Mary. One of them is sung and composed by Zacharias. There are actually five songs. We only have four weeks in December, so we can only do four, but there are five songs, and many scholars think there's only four, but if you'll look at those passages in the first Luke chapter one, and, chapter 1 and chapter 2, you'll see very clearly there's five songs. And in these first two chapters of Luke, there's two women, there's two men that make up a choir of four, and they have some BV. The back or BGVs, background vocalists are the angels. That's a pretty good BGV to have, okay? The angels who declare in heaven that he is holy is the background vocalist for four people. So we've got a little quartet right here in the midst of Luke 1 and Luke chapter, Luke chapter 1 and chapter 2. And Henry Burton, who is one of my favorite authors, he was writing at the end of the 19th century. He likens the first two chapters of Luke to what he calls the entryway to the grand cathedral of the gospel. 
He said, imagine as you enter the doors to this cathedral, the first thing you do is hear glorious music. Imagine you open the doors and glorious music touches your ears. And here's what he writes. On the one side are Zacharias and Simeon, the one chanting his Benedictus. This is Latin terms. He's writing from Latin language. Benedictus is, of course, the Magnificat, which is the song in Latin that Mary sung. And the scripture says, in the other, his nunc dimittis. Facing them as if in, he says, in Tiffany are Elizabeth and Mary, the one singing her beatitude, that's Elizabeth, and the other her magnificent, that means exaltation, while overhead in the frescoed and starlighted sky are vast multitudes of the heavenly host enriching the Advent music with their glorious. Burton goes on like this for some time. You can read this entire book. It's wonderful reading. It's very poetic. I think it would bore people that are very desensitized and disenchanted like our culture is. But he's writing in a much different culture. And this is amazing as you begin to move through this. It seems like when you're reading his sermon, you're reading his book, that you're being ushered slowly into the crystal halls of grace. And as you're there, your heart begins to beat with the excitement of standing before the King of kings and the Lord of lords, that you're literally bowing at the feet of Almighty God. That, my friends, is the point of music. Music's purpose is to prepare us to meet God. That's why God created music. For humans to encounter who he is. Luke, he starts the gospel, starts the message of Jesus with this beautiful music that calls us to worship God. He's put together this choir, if you will. Burton says that at first the songs seem too loud, and they do. They seem deafening. Did we just not read Mary's song? It seems out of place. It seems confusing, to be honest with you, when you read it. And it struck a note with me because as I thought about it last year and thought about it again this December, when I was preaching on the opening chapters of Luke. These songs in Luke 1 and 2 seem so misplaced. They seem so abrupt. They seem so strangely out of character for people like Mary, for people like Zacharias, for people like Simeon. But Burton points out in his book that they are intended to be deafening. Why? For look what event in history they proclaim. How sad and empty it would be if Jesus Christ had come to earth and there was no music to proclaim his arrival. How sad it would be for human history if there was no music to pronounce his coming. And I gotta be honest with you, Matthew, Mark, and John do not include any of these songs. So how thankful can we be as Christians that Luke did? No songs. Can you imagine Christmas without Christmas carols? What a tragedy it would be if the first Christmas had no music to announce Christ's coming. Burton says... Had there not been a burst of song, and that the most joyful burst in history, he said, we would have listened for the very rocks in Jerusalem to cry out, rebuking the silence. I like it, Burton. Mary's song. Mary's song. Now, Mary's song has four parts. I put them right there in your U version or on your card as well. There's four parts. I want to hit them very quickly and briefly. Verse 46 and 47 is the first part. You can break this uh, nine verses into four parts. The first part is Mary's praise. Praise. That's how we would label the first two verses. And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord. Everybody say magnifies. In English, that's present tense. And my spirit has rejoiced. Has is an auxiliary verb. Auxiliary verb that's put with a past participle. It's called a past tense verb. Has rejoiced. So my soul magnifies present tense. But why does my soul magnify present tense? Because my spirit, past tense, has rejoiced in God my Savior. Now, I wanted to, i got to be honest with you, spend my entire message today just talking about this issue of worship. I wanted to spend the whole message. God began to ignite and do something a little different. But let me give you just a little bit, a part of it. Mary reveals something very clearly about praising and worshiping God. That is that although verse 46 comes first, it's in the present tense. Whereas verse 47, if you see in your Bible, is in the past tense. In other words, her soul magnifies God because her spirit has already rejoiced in God. 
A spirit that rejoices in God leads to a soul that magnifies God. Now that makes a lot of sense for worship. Let me tell you why. Because we are made up of body, soul, and spirit. A spirit man, okay, is fused with Christ. Our soul is made up of our mind, will, and emotions. The soul we can say is the root and the seed of our emotions. It refers to our inner life. It's our emotional center. In fact, it's through our souls that we relate personally. It's through our souls that we relate emotionally with other people. It was through my kids' souls that they looked upon their sister, baby sister, yesterday for the first time and began to say, man, I, your, bro, your big brother loves you. So, that's your soul. Your soul is relating relationally. Your soul is relating emotionally with the people around you. But the spirit is altogether different. The Spirit's not our emotional side. It's the side of us that relates to God, communes with God. It's the part of us that knows who God is, what he's like, what he wants from us. It's the part of us that understands what God has done for us and what he's given to us. And so when Mary says that her spirit has rejoiced in God, she is saying that her spirit has understood who God is. You can't worship and magnify God, praising him in your soul until your spirit has come to understand understand his word and who he is. It's after my spirit is solidified in who God is and how God has revealed himself to me that then I can worship. In other words, she knows what God has said in his word. She believes in the truths he's revealed. And this, by the way, is the beginning point of all true worship of God, an understanding of who God is. Emotions and feelings are a part of worship, but they're not a necessary part of worship. That is to say that they are not in and of themselves worship. A lot of people think that they've not worshipped God unless they got goosebumps. I've not worshipped God unless I got chills. I've not worshipped God unless I've broken out in tears. I've not uh, worshipped God unless I ended with shouting with excitement. Well, that is soulless worship, but it's not necessarily the spirit worship. That's soulless worship. Mary reveals that true worship of God begins with the Spirit. It begins with the understanding that God is who God says he is, what he's done, always given to us. And if I don't understand the truths of Scripture, I cannot truly worship God in my spirit. Let's start there. That's where it starts. That's why Jesus says in John 4, the true worshipers worship in what? In soul and truth. No. They worship in spirit and in truth. True worship of God flows through the Spirit based upon the foundation of the Word of God. Where the Scriptures are not understood, the Spirit does not get involved, and there can be no true worship. So we worship based on what God has spoken to us. Sometimes the emotions and feelings get involved, right? The soul gets involved, and it should get involved. This is what happens to Mary here. She says, my soul magnifies God, present tense, because why? In other words, my soul is delighting in the Lord because my spirit has already rejoiced in God, my Savior. A lot of people say, I can't worship unless I feel it. They also think they're not worshiping unless they feel something. Mary reveals that true worship of God will sometimes lead to feelings, but not, it doesn't always lead to feelings. True worship of God doesn't necessarily just focus on feelings, but it focuses on what God has done for us, what God has given to us. When you come to church or when you sit down on a Monday morning with this cup of coffee and listen to your worship CD and you read your Bible, what do you do those things for is the question. Does it get a tingle from God? Well, your relationship with Jesus is about this deep. Is it to feel the brush of angels' wings on your face? Is it to sense the Spirit falling afresh upon you? All of those things are great, they're wonderful, but they don't always necessitate and become the verification that worship has taken place. Mary had such a mind thoroughly soaked in Scripture, and we know this from the way the angel speaks to her because she then breaks out in a song of Hannah, exactly the same song as Hannah. First Samuel. She's got a mind soaked with scripture. She knew the word of God. I want to ask you, how do you respond to the truths of God? Is it with a yawn of boredom? Or is it like Mary, where these truths are so rich and so inspiring that you break out in song? Because if you allow God to speak to you through his word, there'll be times where you want to break out in song. It may be right in the middle of a message. You want to break out in song. This is what happens. For Mary, worshiping God was the greatest, most exciting thing she could do. The truths and promises she learned from God, uh, from Scripture, caused her rejoice in her whole being. Worship is when the total being becomes a glow with God. This is worship. 
Look at the second part of the song. It's Mary's benefit. That's verse 48 and 49. You say, what does he say? He said, for he has regard the lowly state of his maidservant. For behold, henceforth all generations will call me blessed, she said. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. One quick point I want to make very interesting, I thought, at least when studying this, is that there are some religious institutions that have mixed up these two verses. She said, all generations have called me blessed, but holy is his name. Well, there are certain organizations that have switched those, and they call Mary holy. Holy Mary. Or holy Mary, the mother of God. No, no, no. She's definitely the mother of God. She's definitely blessed. But it's God who's holy. And Mary would flip, turn, turn flips in her grave if, if she knew that there were people still calling her holy Mary. She said, holy is his name. Blessed is my name. I'm blessed. He's holy. There's no such thing, by the way, as the Immaculate Conception. I know the Catholic Church believes in the Immaculate Conception, this idea that Mary was sinless. And so that's how Jesus was born without sin. No, Mary was a sinner. Jesus was born without sin, true, but he was born without sin because he didn't have an earthly father. That's how he was not born with sin. Instead, God, who alone is holy, who is his father, and Mary reveals that she has a knowledge of this. Mary's very theologically astute to be 14 years old. She understands this. She speaks of her own lowly state. That recourse refers to her own humility before God, the lowliness of mind she has before God. That also, though, refers to her sinful condition. She understood she was a sinner. You say, Craig, how do you know that? Because the word she uses for humble estate is the same word used in Philippians 3.21 to refer to the body of sin we find ourselves in. I'm bound to sin. Our body of humiliation in direct contrast to the body of glorification we receive in heaven. She also recognizes she's a servant. She says she's the maidservant of God. She knows that she's going to be blessed of God. She's been blessed. She's the most favored woman on the face of the earth. Some have overreacted. Some parts of Christian history have idolized her, which is, I know, something Mary would not have wanted, but we don't have to idolize her to call her blessed. And the crazy thing is when I really began to think about Mary this week and what Mary knows that we don't know as believers... Man, it's just so, it's so enriching and such a mental task to think about the fact that we can be more blessed than Mary. And Mary said, I'm blessed. Because Jesus said in Luke 11, more than that, blessed are those, speaking of mothers and brothers, his mother and brother outside waiting, blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. I can be more blessed than the Mary mother of Jesus. Jesus, of course, is not trying to downplay the significance of Mary's blessing. He's just putting her blessedness in perspective. That's what it all comes back to, folks. The word of God must be heard and obeyed. Mary is the ideal model believer in Luke chapter 1. She heard God's word, she believed it, and she broke out in song. Isn't that, if we just get that down pat, we're done. We might as well meet Jesus. Hear God's word, believe it, don't allow doubt to enter, and break out in praise. This is Mary. This is where true worship comes from. If you want to worship God, Mary says you got to get into the Word. you got to get in the Word. By the way, she understands what God has said. We go on to the next part, the third part, which is Luke 1, 50, 51, 52, and 53. This is the world's benefit. So we have Mary's praise. We have Mary's benefit. Now we're switching to the world's benefit. Jesus benefited Mary. Jesus will benefit the world. And then the fourth section we'll see in a minute, Jesus will benefit Israel. And his mercy is on those who fear him from generation to generation, she says. He's shown strength with his arm. He's scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He's put down the mighty from their thrones. He exalted the lowly. He's filled the hungry with good things. And the rich he sent away empty. Mary sings in a way that responds. And God responds in two ways to two different kinds of people in the world. There are those who fear God and obey him. And there are those who are proud or arrogant. And this is the difference. Those who fear God and obey him. Those who are proud and arrogant. The one who fear God and obey him receive his mercy, receive his position for their needs. Fearing God is a respectful obedience to him. He shows his mercy to those who fear him. He shows his mercy to those who bow before him. The greatest act of mercy that God has ever shown is sending Jesus Christ into the world to save sinners like you and I. We receive his mercy. God did not give this to us but gave Jesus Christ instead. And all who believe in him, he said, receive eternal life. And Mary implies that this good news is not just for her generation, but it can be passed down to the next generation, to the next generation, to the next generation, to the next generation. In other words, the gospel and Jesus' entrance in Christmas is good news for all people. The blessings of God that come through Jesus Christ are for everybody, if they just believe in Jesus. This is what Mary sings. And Mary begins 
Her song, by magnifying God. Let me tell you something. If you have trouble magnifying God, it's probably because you're magnifying yourself. If you have trouble praising God, it's probably because you're trying to sit in God's seat. But when I get off God's seat and I put myself in right perspective, worship flows ceaselessly. It's unending. It's exaltation of what God has done for your life. So I tell people all the time, if, if you have trouble praising God, it's probably because, again, you're trying to sit in a seat, and you better step down before you get tripped up because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. This is a benefit to the world, but then he goes on to the Israel's benefit. I want to expound much more on the world's benefit in a minute, but look at the fourth part of the psalm or this song. It's the benefit of Israel. For look at the Bible says, he has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his seed forever. So although the people of Israel have almost always been in a state of rebellion before God or against God, God reminds them here that through Mary that he will never forsake them. He will always remember them. He will always fulfill his promises to them. God is on Israel's side. That's what he's saying. And Mary's song for us, church, is such a beautiful reminder of all that God has done for us, all that God has promised to do for those who follow after him. It's a new song that bursts from the lips of Mary based on what she knew scripture to say. And this song for me, I don't know when you read it, but for me it seems to end so abruptly. It's like all of a sudden it's over. It just stops. I don't know, maybe, maybe Mary drifted off. This is how my mind thinks into humming her tune. Maybe Luke didn't record all of her song, but I think her song ended just as recorded here with just an abrupt stop. Why? Because her song's not over. This is just the first verse of millions of verses in Mary's life. This is where God ignited me this week. What does Mary know before the birth of Jesus that causes the Titus 2 passage we read and John 2 passage we read at the Canaan wedding at Canaan in Galilee? What does she know about Jesus that causes her to respond to Jesus in the way she does? Because nobody else is responding or relating to God in that way. She knew something. She knew something amazing. What do you say in Craig? It must never be forgotten that whenever Christ has entered into a human heart, a new song has been put in the mouth of a believer. In other words, Christianity in the heart means music to the life. You're always going to be given song. You're always. A religion without joy is a landscape without the sun, right? This is what Harry Rimmer said. It's Christianity without the elevation of music is an eagle with broken wings. It never flies. This is what music is designed by God to do, to prepare us to meet with God, which leads us to this passage in Titus. Titus chapter 2, we just read it. You can put it back up on the, pa- of the, sc- of the screens again. Beginning in verse 11, it's amazing. This is an epistle written by Paul to Titus. I want to look at a phrase in this one scripture that embodies the song that you and I just read. That phrase at the end of this, verse 14, is that Jesus... The Bible says, purifies for himself a people for his own possession. Say that with me again. Say, a people for his own possession. Now that in Greek, which is a language that Titus, that Paul writes in, is only one word. It's a compound word of two words. But that compound word paints a beautiful picture for our understanding of the immensity and the beauty and the power of God's love for us individually. And can I just remind us in this Christmas season, because it is Christmas, the reason we celebrate Christmas is not because there's a baby in a manger. I know we like to talk about that baby in a manger. But, but that baby boy would actually become a man. He would grow up to be a perfect, spotless man. We call him the God-man, Jesus Christ. And that man would pay the ultimate sacrifice for those of us who are not perfect and spotless and sinless. He would go to a cross and he would die. We, by definition, have all erred. We, by definition, are sinners. We have each turned to our own way. Jesus paid the price for all of us and all of humanity and all of our sin, past, present, and future. And he paid the ultimate penalty and he died a horrible death on a cross. He was buried three days. And the Bible says on the third day he was resurrected. And now as he's seated in heaven, he rules and reigns over the affairs of men. And Christianity is Christianity because it points to a cross. And Christmas is about a cross too. Christmas points to a cross and gives us hope 
and it gives the hope to us that Jesus Christ, who came as a baby, became a man so that he would die to set our enslaved souls free. So that my little six-year-old yesterday, when I said to him again, Knox, what is Christmas about? He said, Jesus' birthday. I said, it is, son, about Jesus' birthday, but why was he born? And he said, Dad, he was born to die. And I said, yes, you'll never, you'll never come across a greater truth. He was born to die. He entered into the world to die, to set our souls free. And that, my friends, is why we celebrate Christmas. We don't celebrate Christmas because of baby. I'm, I'm so glad he's not a baby anymore. I'm thankful for the baby, but I'm thankful that the baby became a man and the man died for you and I. This is Christmas. One silent night led to one glorious day where my soul got free. This is Christmas. Jesus enters the scene. Notice, he's purifying for himself a people of his own possession. A people for his own possession. If you look at John chapter 2 again, Jesus is in this wedding feast. This is an all-out party. John chapter 2, it should be noted if you look at verse 1. While Jesus was at this wedding at Cana, the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus was invited to the wedding. Jesus was at the party. should be noticed Jesus went to parties. A lot of Christians need to relax this time of the season. I can't go to the parties. Well, Jesus went to parties, so you take that. What would Jesus do? He'd go to the party, okay? So that's what Jesus did. WWJD, put it on your, your wrist, Jesus party, okay? And so Jesus goes to the party. He likes, verse 3, the Bible says, he said, they ran out of wine. The mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Jesus said to her, woman, remember I told you, you can't call your mom woman unless you're God. And woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come, unless... You're God, right? His hour's not come. And then she says, after he told her that this is not the plan, his mother said to the servants anyway, anyways, in spite of it, do whatever he tells you to do. So my question is this, what does Mary know in the Magnificat? What does Mary know about observing Jesus for 30 years that we don't know that causes her to say what she just said in verse 5? What does she know? What does she understand? Let me ask you a question. Have you ever been in your single years? Just think back with me, married folk. Single folk, you're right there. You remember back in your single years when you were, how can we put this? A prospect invites you to a hangout. We'll say it that way. And, and there's, they're a potential more than a friend, if you never know what I mean. They're a potential more than a friend. Not necessarily more than a friend, but a potential more than a friend. And they want to hang out, so you get pumped, and you're like, yeah, of course. I mean, I've been waiting for you to ask me to hang out for the last six months. You understand? I prayed for you for four years. And so you, you're there. It's time to hang out, right? And you're all dolled up. Now, I don't know what that means. It just sounds good. So you're pretty. You look good. You dolled yourself up. You're ready. It's Christmas season. You get pumped. You're ready. You're excited. And you show up downtown or to the coffee shop or down, you know, wherever the restaurant or maybe it's a cafe and or maybe it's the mall I don't know maybe you met at the movies Panera I don't know what you did but you showed up you're ready and this is going to be such a magical Saturday you're ready to tweet Instagram do all the things about it and uh, this is a day for you and you show up there at this time and you're so excited but yet you show up and you realize that um, 20 other people are invited to the hangout you ever been there before? Like, oh, dear God, I'm overdressed. I must have totally misread this situation. I thought the text to me was, it wasn't a group me text, so I figured it was a personal invite to me, and I thought maybe you and I had a potential. Th and, and so now you're just embarrassed, right? But you've been invited. You, you, you went too far. You took it to the extreme. You totally misread the situation. I thought this was a one-on-one. -on -one. You know, I thought I was kind of a bit unique, but I really am just one of 20, and the only one in your mind is not me, but there's actually 19 other people in your mind and now I'm here with 20 other strangers and I hate my life, see you, bye. Which leads me to ninth grade. In ninth grade, these were troubled times for me. Started dating a girl, drop dead gorgeous. She was a knockout. Her name was Nicole Belanger. Nicole Belanger's now Nicole Bells. She's friends with my current wife now, but she lived in the neighborhood next door to me. Sunday Daisy, Tennessee. And these were troubled times for a nice freshman. I had um, dated her when I was in eighth grade. We were really, really close multiple times. 
And I moved into ninth grade. In ninth grade, how many of y'all know the worst thing that can happen to a ninth grade basketball player? I was a basketball player, and I played a little bit. I even dressed varsity a little bit my freshman year, right at the end of the year. And um, I thought when Nicole and I started, you know, going together, dating, that I was the only one in her life. I thought. And uh, this story progresses throughout my freshman year. And uh, the worst fear of a freshman boy in high school is that you date another freshman girl and some dude who's way cooler than you as a senior starts stealing all the freshman girls when they come in. It's the worst year of your life. As a freshman boy, you might as well just leave school. You know what I'm saying? It's a bad, bad time. You have no ability. Your voice is cracking. You've only got two or three armpit hairs. I mean, and, and then there's senior boys that are, I mean, just, you know, they're just, just getting all the girls. And so there was a guy uh, on our team, on our basketball team, who went and played college basketball. His name was Josh Sullivan. And I came to find out, King, that she had a little bit of a portion of her heart for him too. And there would be times where I would write notes, and I did this all the time, right? I wrote notes. This is what kept us steady. We were going really steady. Y'all remember those days you walk into the lunchroom and you're like, oh, dear God, there she is, you know. Oh, you know, you see her and you're like, because all you've been doing is notes, right? And the notes kept y'all steady for months. But when you see each other face to face, it's, it's an all another diff- different deal, right? And so I saw her and, and, you know, you're talking to her, having this engagement with her. And then she then invites me over and I go to her house one afternoon and we're playing basketball out front. I'm babysitting her kids, you know, just trying to do the dad thing. And uh, just hold the babies on my shoulder and, you know, all this fun stuff. And, and she then tells me the worst thing you can ever hear. She said, um, Craig, I need to have a conversation with you. And so now I'm really nervous about this. And she begins to tell me that she, she has a thing for another man, right? I thought I was the only one in her life. I had made it very clear for multiple months that she and I were this one-on-one kind of thing, right? And she tells me that she likes Josh. And then she gives me the worst excuse. Ladies, if you ever do this, just repent right now. It's not you, it's me. It's not you, it's me. Dear God, there's nothing worse. If it's not you, it's me, then change you. You're so nice, Craig. It's it's not you. It's me. Well, Josh is a senior. I don't I don't stand a chance with this dude. I have no chance. I'm one of many basketball players in her world. But you know, you 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 felt that before, right? We've all had that point is where initially you felt like you were unique. You felt like you were the only person. You felt like you were the only one in the situation, only to come find out that you're one of many. You discover very quickly, maybe in a relationship, have you ever told anyone, like you went to somebody and you're like, hey, you're my best friend. And they're like, cool. And they never say it back. <laughs> you know, it's like, oh, that was, oh, uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, I mean kind of like my side friend, you know. You're not like my best friend, but like, you know, uh, right? We've, we've all felt that before. Which, which leads me to this passage because when we, ex- when we consider the extent and the beauty of God's love for us, why is it that when I read that God loves me, when I consider that God loves me, when I sing that God loves me, why in that moment do I not fall over in utter astonishment with the beauty and the magnitude and the glory of that reality? Have you ever thought about this? Why is it that when I hear God loves me, why don't I go, wow! The God of the universe who breathed out the starry host, who breathed out sun, stars, moons, planets, solar systems into existence with a very breath. He actually has affinity. He actually has affection. He actually has love and passion for me. That should literally cause me to fall on my back every time I'm addressed with that truth. I should just, I should just fall. It should, but it doesn't. And if you're like me, at Christmas, you start struggling again of why you can hear that Jesus loves you and you lump it in the same kind of statement as basketball's fun. I've done student ministry for 12 years and I don't know how many times I've told students that God loves them and no one falls out on their back. Why? I think Mary's about to show us. Why do we not get utterly amazed at that? Maybe you're here as we gather on Sundays and Pastor Chad gets up and said, hey, God loves you. you Oh, yeah, that's cool. I think one of the reasons is we have misunderstood how God's love really works. For instance, John 3, 16 said, for God so loved the world. And that's beautiful, but I think we take that phrase and we conclude that God's love is for the whole world, like God loves the whole world, right? That's what he does. He loves the whole world. We think in terms of God loves the world, which means you get invited to this party, this incredible party with God, you think it's one-on-one, and there's 7.2 billion people there. And you think, and you say, hey, um, if you don't mind, just tell God if you see him, just tell him I said hello, I gotta go, I I got an appointment. You felt that before. Like, we think God's love is for the whole world, and we forget that God's love is appropriated to our individual 
lives. So when I say things like, hey, God loves you, you go, oh yeah, God loves animals too, you know. He loves worms and ticks and deers that the ticks eat. And he loves birds, he loves trees, he loves grass, you know. Like, hey, NFL's on today, the playoffs. Oh, cool. You know, hey, we got some pizza for you. Oh, that's cool. Hey, God loves you, that's cool. We just kind of lump them all together. And we've said it so many times, it doesn't really cause us to be changed anymore. And we fail to realize that the greatest truth in all of human history is God's love for you. God's love for me. So how do I truly understand how God loves me? Well, that leads me to this Greek word that Paul uses in Titus chapter two. And it's a compound word. Everybody say compound. And Peter uses it in 2 Peter, so it's used twice. But it's actually one Greek word. It's a compound word with two Greek words. And the two Greek words are peri, usia. Peri means around. Usia means to be. Usia means an essence, to be. It's the to be verb in English. Peri means around. So periousia means to be around, to be and to be around. In other words, what he's saying, the beautiful picture that we're given as Paul is trying to describe to Titus why Jesus did all that he did, that he came to this earth as a babe, he lived this in this life, he died on a cross to purify for himself his own people. Paul is trying to communicate to Titus the nature of God's love. And he says what God's love looks like is para usian. And he, he describes how God's love works for each individual who has put their trust in Jesus. And the portrait we're given by this ancient word is literally that you are the dot on the page and there is a circle around you that is perfect, comprehensive, complete, and it's unbroken. That God's love for you is a complete and perfect circle around your soul. That he is, you are his own possession. Parousia. His love is unbroken around you. His love is completely surrounding you. And that circle, by the way, is unique to you. One scholar says of Perusi, and here's what he said. He said that God loves you as if you are the only human being to have ever lived. This is God's love for you. God's affinity, God's obsession, God's uh, affection for you is only for you the way it is for you. Can I say that again? In other words, God's love, that circle that's around your life right now, see what we do is we draw the love of God like a circle around the globe. God loves the world, so we take our, par- our marker and we mark all around the globe that God loves the whole world. But God's love for you is so intimate, it's so unique, it's so sufficient to say that your relationship with God is only your relationship with God. Now that's not to say you don't share the life of Christ with believers, but first and foremost, your relationship with God has to be personal with you. And the love connection I have with God is unique from your love connection with God because you've been through some things that I haven't been through. And I've gone through some things in my unbroken fellowship with God that you've never gone through. And he says, my love for you, my special possession is parousian, to be and to be all the way around. Now, folks, this is amazing, more amazing than what probably you and I could ever understand today. I want you to kind of sink in for the last few moments to this spiritually and emotionally. Let yourself wade into this for a minute. God's love for you is so obsessive, so unique, and so tailor-made to you, specifically to you, that he made you because there was not another you on the planet. That's why God made you, but he wanted you because he wanted to love you unlike he loved anyone else in the entire world. He wants to love you in a way that he doesn't love others. It's near and unique to who you are. He wouldn't have made you if he didn't want you and want to enjoy you. He made me to enjoy me. He made King to enjoy King. He made Rachel to enjoy Rachel. So you're actually not going to the party and there's 7 billion people. When God invites you to the party, it's like Mary being invited into the tomb on resurrection day. And the angel said, you go see for yourself. It's a personal revelation that his love is specifically designed for me. God is inviting us to the party and says, it's just you and me at this party engaging and relating. God is individually involved in an intimate way with your every breath, your every desire, your every moment. And scripture expands it to say that he knows the very numbers of hairs on your head, folks. That's called an obsessive compulsive disorder. OCD people would count how many hairs you have. People who are obsessed with you would track you down to try to figure out how many hairs you have. And the Bible talks about how the angels think it's so 
amazing that, that God thinks so much about humans that the Bible says they long to even look into the salvation of mankind. It blows their minds how much God loves and cares for humans. The angels are mystified by God's care and how much God loves us. And the story of Christmas, church, if we don't get anything else this month, is God's invasion, God's involvement. Christmas is God's invasion to the planet. It is God's declaration to human history of how intimately engaged and involved he is with human beings. So much so that he became a being. He became a baby to become a man so that we can have intimate, loving relationship individually and corporately with him. You are God's own special possession, and his circle around you is complete, and it's spotless, and it's perfect. No matter what you're going through today, his love circle is complete. Now, this leads us to the wedding that we see in Cana of Galilee that we read about, and it's a short, short passage. It's only five verses, but it's a short picture of showing us what Mary knows. And as I read this in my own John class in seminary, man, we spent so much time talking to this passage. We ask the question, I wonder what Mary knows that we don't know that leads her to operate the way she does at this wedding. Because let's paint the picture real quick and then I'm going to connect the dots and close this. First of all, this is not an ordinary wedding. This is like a party of on parties. How do you know that? Because they would have the bridegroom and the guest, or the bridegroom and the, the bride, they would have, with a wedding planner, planned this wedding for about 12 months, up to 12 months before this wedding happens. They would have planned it. And they would have been doing this as early as 12 months because they've got a big feast and the bridegroom and the groom would have prepared the proper portions to ensure things that didn't run out. Now, folks, understand in the ancient Near Eastern world, it's a big deal for things to run out at a wedding. That's why Psalm 23 says, my cup overflows. If your cup doesn't overflow, the, the, the host doesn't want you to stay at their table anymore. As long as they keep pouring pouring wine and it overflows, you're welcome. Jesus says, you're welcome in my presence perpetually as the good shepherd. That's why my cup overflows. But if you run out of wine, particularly out of wine, but if you run out of food, it's a bad deal. But if you run out of wine at a party for guests that you invited, that is a shame to your name. Some, some accounts say that you wouldn't have any weddings in the family ever again because you over-invited the number of guests and didn't prepare for the people that would be there to enjoy themselves. This is a big deal. This is a major deal. They've now run out of wine in the midst of a party. They've run out of wine in the midst of this huge situation. They don't have the revenue and resource sufficient enough to, to, to take care of the guest is what was assumed. The calculations have been made for 12 months to ensure the people who are there have enough. Now the people don't have enough because they've been sucking back on this. They've drank it all. The 12 months of preparation was off and this party is going down. It could be said, some commentators say, some people already leaving the party saying this thing is over. It's done. The wine is gone. Somehow Mary finds out. If we'll just read into this passage a minute, it's hard for a mother to find out that the wine's gone. The only way they, fe they figure out that Mary probably knew that the wine was out is because Mary herself knew the people that were at this wedding. Some scholars say these were relatives of Jesus. If they were not relatives, they were very, very close friends. So now Mary, who is a family member of maybe the host of the wedding, has found out there is no more wine. People are leaving for the doors. So Mary approaches Jesus. And this is such a mom, folks. This is what moms do. I love this so much. She goes, hey, uh, Jesus, they have no wine. Jesus internally is probably like, Mom, is that a question? Is that a command? Is that a request? What is that, Mom? You know, they have no more wine. That's how Mom does it, though, right? She just comes to you, and she wants you to learn your lesson. She's like, hey, son, there's no wine. Sure wish I knew a miracle worker that can make some more, you know. <laughs> you know, like, this is, this is Mary. She's looking at Jesus saying, hey, there's no more wine. Let's just stop here for a second. Can you imagine Mary now? Mary is the mother of Jesus. She has the nerve and the audacity in this moment to literally go to Jesus. Put it in perspective, okay? Now, I love Mary. We love Mary. Mary, I know you love these people. I know they're maybe your relatives, or at least they're their close friends. But let's just stop you for a second, Mary. Intersect Mary on the way to her son. Jesus has yet to manifest his miraculous powers. The wedding at Canaan Galilee is his very first public miracle. That means that Jesus has not manifested his miraculous power in public. Jesus is on the greatest rescue mission that the world world and human history has ever seen. It's called to come rescue the souls of men. Jesus is now at this party. He's never, ever shown his power. Jesus has come on earth to save the world, Mary, not make more wine. What are you doing? And why are you asking what you're asking, right? I mean, think about this. Mary, and furthermore, if we're going to start off this ministry that's the greatest rescue mission, why don't we do it with a little more gumption than just making wine? Why don't we do it with, uh, let's say it this way, with more press power 
than just making wine. Why don't we, I would if I was Jesus' disciple, go get a dude who's been dead for 25 years, bring him up in the wedding, lay him on the table, and say, Jesus, boom, and make him come. I mean, that would be some press power. Mary, why are you asking the Son of God to make more wine? Mary wants to kick off the ministry of Jesus by making some friends more wine to drink. I know, I know we don't ever think about it that way. we got to settle into it a minute. That's what she wants. Now, if I read that passage, I begin to ask myself, am I missing something? What is going on here? Mary, are you serious? You're actually asking Jesus for more wine. What in the world were you thinking? You've obviously had too much. <laughs> what is going on with you, Mary? Can you imagine if you're at this party? If I was at this party, imagine, if I'm there, John's there, Philip's there, Bartholomew's there, Mark's there. Philip comes up to me and says, uh, hey, Craig, we're out of wine, man, go ask Jesus. I'm like, I ain't going to ask Jesus for more wine. I'm an evangelical. I never drank wine in my life. You know what I'm saying? Like, I, I don't care about wine. You know what I'm saying? You're like, no, I'm not. I mean, I'm just trying to put myself in the story. Like, you go ask Jesus for more wine. I don't even drink wine. You know what I'm saying? Like, I... I, I Okay, they finally talked me into it. I'm like, okay, shh, shut up, shut up, shut up. I'll go ask him. Oh, shh, I'll come back and tell you. So you walk over to Jesus. You're already nervous because you're like, oh, it's a bonehead ask. It's a bonehead ask. What am I doing this for? You walk over to Jesus and you're like, hey, Jesus, um, um, look, they're out of wine. Now, listen, the moment he goes, excuse me, Craig, because this is what he says to Mary, what does that have to do with me? It's not my plan. My hour's not yet come. I would be like, I knew it. I exactly what I told Philip. Golly bum, you stupid idiot. Why did you do that? I know it's not your time and not your plan, Jesus, to make more wine. I told him. I just did it because they asked, you know, like, sorry. God bless. I mean, I mean, you are blessed of God. Yeah. I, you know. But that's not what Mary does. Think about the nerve of a woman who was just told no. But it wasn't just told no. She was told no, followed with, I am the sovereign, almighty creator God, and it is not my plan to do this. That's a pretty big no, Mary. Okay, turn around. Okay, this is what Jesus said, all right? And, and you've been pretty good at planning. I think you kind of planned the sun, the moon, the stars. So since you've done that, I, I figured if you didn't plan this more wine, then maybe I shouldn't, you know, kind of insist that more wine be made. But she seems convinced otherwise. Mary is convinced something's about to happen. Whatever he tells you to do, she says, do it. It's about to go down, you know. So the question is, what does Mary know? Can I confess to you, I don't know what Mary knows? Because this is never how I relate to God. I didn't relate to him this Monday in the NICU this way. Nope, it's not my plan. What does this have to do with me? Are you like me and sometimes you feel guilty for small prayers? Like I was driving last Saturday morning to Valdosta State and we had the parade that evening. So I got up, I don't know, I had a session at like 10. So I got up at like four and left and I got there and I was getting there right at time. And so I knew it was a big campus. There was a lot going on on campus that morning. So as I'm pulling up, you know, I'm in my heated truck and everything's good. I've already drank coffee and you know, I'm like, God, would you just give me an up-close spot so I don't have to walk forever, you know? And I'm like, sometimes it hits me, and I'm like, oh, dear God, okay, I'm get some perspective, Pastor. You're in a warm truck, and you just drank coffee, and you're going to go preach the gospel. I don't think it matters about your parking spot. But yet I look at this story, and Mary is like, oh, my, my friends and them continuing to enjoy themselves is on my mind, so I'll go to Jesus. You will? Doesn't he have like a big plan to save the souls of man? You're going to ask him to get some more wine? Well, probably. I'll just go ask him. We'll see how it goes. And he says, that's not the plan. And she seems convinced that he will. Have you ever thought about this before? He says no, and she says whatever he tells you to do, do it. She's still convinced as mom He's about to do something. 
What kind of relationship does it take with God to act that way? What kind of relationship does Mary have with God? What has Mary learned in 30 years of watching Jesus that I don't know? Because it says twice in the Christmas story, one time when Jesus was being worshipped by the shepherds that Pastor Chad talked about, the Bible says shepherds came, wise men came, and after they left that night and the scene was over, the Bible says in Luke chapter 1, she treasured or pondered these things in her heart. But that wasn't the only time she pondered things in her heart. A couple years later, Jesus is 12 years old. The the Bible says the family left him back in the temple, didn't know he was there until a day and a half. They double back, go in the temple. They're like, Jesus, what in the world are you doing here? Why don't you stay with your mom and dad? And he's like, Mom, did you not know that I would always be about my father's business? And he's he's dumbfounding all the scholars and the scribes and the Pharisees with all the teaching because he is the word, right? And then the scene ends, and the Bible says that Mary treasured, Luke 1, 51, treasured these things in her heart. In other words, notice, she has had a front row seat to the love of Jesus, and now we're at an average wedding. It's an inconsequential party to the universe. It's not the plan. It's not a big deal. Jesus shouldn't use his miraculous power to do this, but Mary seems 100% convinced that this is what's on her heart, and if it's what's on her heart, then it matters to him, and it matters to Jesus. So she comes to Jesus and says, hey, Jesus, we're out of wine. And he says, no, this has nothing to do with me. And yet, she says, that's not what you mean, Jesus. You have the opportunity to alter the plans. And then the plans for the miracle are about to happen. I want to to relate to Jesus the way Mary relates to Jesus. Listen to Jesus in John 17, verse 26. This is what he said. Jesus said, the Father has loved me. This is the Father. I've made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. What is he saying? He's saying, translation, the same affinity and affection and love and obsession that God the Father has for God the Son is the same affinity, obsession that God the Son has for you. This is how God loves loves you. Now, if I believe that perfect circle of love that is around me, that would change my behavior, church. That would change my thinking patterns. It would change my vocabulary. It would change my desires. You got something on your mind today? Go to Jesus. I don't care how inconsequential it is. I don't care what you feel like you're facing. I don't care how small you think the problem is. You got something on your mind? Go to Jesus. If it matters to you, it matters to him. And Mary knows this about the Son of God. Why? Because the love of God is surrounding you. And it's unbroken. And it's totally perfect. And it's totally closed and it's totally comprehensive. You, 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 you want to talk to somebody today? You got something on your mind? Go to Jesus is what the passage says. You got an ache in your body? Go to Jesus. You got a problem with your family? Go to Jesus. You got, you, got you got a win in your life? You want to celebrate? Don't get on the phone. Go to Jesus because he wants to hear about it. Go to Jesus. No matter how small, no matter how inconsequential it seems, you are in the romance of the ages, folks. He loves you with an everlasting love. Christmas is about his invasion into your world. And now he loves you Mary, who see in completely perfectly his love around you is like a circle. It's unbroken. You're in love with the greatest lover of all time. There's no lover like our Jesus. And he loves you with an everlasting love. And he wants to engage you on any level. He wants to engage you on any issue. There's not an issue too big or too small that Jesus does not want you to come to him. And if you'll go to God with it, here's what I've learned. Oh, it's an easy message today. And it is simple, but it'll change the way we live. If I go to God with whatever it is I have, here's what I've learned. What ends up happening in my opinion and in my journey and we see it in scripture is that you go to God and you want a parking spot at Valdosta State. Uh, What you want is a parking spot. What you want is a relationship. What you want is marriage. What you want is a dating partner. What you want is a a new job. What you want is an increase. What you want is a bonus. What you want is a certain position. And you go to God with it and what's amazing is when you use this desire as a platform to go to God in this love relationship, then what ends up happening is the outcome of what you've asked for it becomes inconsequential because you in that moment already realize you have the greatest thing you could ever have, and that is a love relationship with the God of ages. This is how God wants us to relate to him. <laughs> And whether you get the parking spot or not, whether you get the marriage or not, whether you get what you desire or not, or you get some drinks for your friends, or you get a job, all of that seems to fade away in the background because you realize what life is all about. And life is about joying and enjoying the love relationship we have with the God of ages. Are you hearing me, church? I'm finished. A modern secular and thinker, his name is Sam Storms. Dr. Sam Storms wrote a book called Supernatural, wrote another book. He's an he's a Anabaptist brother. And he writes this in one of his books about the meaning of life. He says, life is this. 
He says, life is to enjoy the joy of being enjoyed by God. Life is to joy the joy of being enjoyed by. You want to celebrate the Christmas season? Enjoy the joy of being enjoyed by God. Enjoy the joy of being enjoyed by God. Enjoy your circle of love because it's only your circle. And God loves you the way he loves you unlike anybody else he loves anyone else. It's your circle. It's your life to enjoy the joy of being enjoyed by God. Merry Christmas to me, right? Enjoy the joy of being enjoyed by God. That's it. What if we made 2017 a year where we just keep getting together? Thursdays, connect groups, outreach events, Sunday gatherings. When we consider and provoke one another as we talk and we sing and celebrate the height, the width, the depth, the love of God's, uh, uh, the, the width of God's love for you and for me. That every time we get together, we just celebrate and sing. We're like Mary, where our soul has magnified the Lord. Our soul is magnifying the Lord because our spirit has already rejoiced in God. And we provoke one another to love and good deeds. And we just keep celebrating his love. Why? Because it's that perfect circle that's yours. And if we this Christmas will lean in and sit down, I hope you go home this afternoon and watch some football or whatever you do, and you sit down on that couch, but that couch is a perfect circle that's yours. And when you sit down, you find joy and you find peace there and you find identity there and you find sanity there and you find hope there. This is what God desires for us at Christmas. His perfect circle. You know, I told you this last Sunday it has been a difficult Difficult few weeks. And in those difficult few weeks, there's been ups and downs, right? Difficulties, challenges, adversities. And sometimes, I'm just talking emotionally, right? That's our soulless realm. Emotionally, when you deal with situations, if you're much like me, we all have coping mechanisms for different things. Some of us check out. Some of us cry a lot. My grandparents, my parents Knox's, Marley Harper's grandparents came to my house yesterday. And when we got home last night with our baby girl, Knox said to his grandparents, who he calls Nana and Baba, he said, Nana and Baba, mom cries about everything. He said, she cries when she's happy. She cries when she's mad at us. She cries, cries when she's cleaning. She cries all the time. And, and Mary said, yeah, you know me. So my wife, she, she cries. But for me, when I go through difficult things, you know, being the pastor, whatever, the shepherd, the leader of your home, you're always attempting to be strong in those moments. But I, over the last few weeks, have gotten to a place, as we all do as humans, just where we tap out in our emotions. And for those of you who know what the NICU life is about, thank God, praise God, our, our baby girl is home. She's still four pounds, eight ounces, but she is four pounds, eight ounces and a strong fighter. And uh, two weeks in the NICU feels like two years when you're going back and forth all the time, right? But it's a beautiful opportunity to be able to pray for other babies, meet other family members, but you're back and forth, and over a period of time, that kind of taps you out. And on Monday, as I was preparing for this message, and again, looking back through old notes that I took in class, and I found this word again, perusian, God's perfect circle. I looked down at my, my wristband that's got blue, ducks, pink ducks, blue duck, pink duck. And it says, baby girl, Moscrow. And on Monday, when the doctors came in who had heard on the 34-week-olds stethoscope that there was a murmur it's no big deal they want to do echocardiograms they did the echocardiogram and we thought nothing would be wrong right we've already gone through a lot of stuff and as I'm sitting there with my wife and this little baby the cardiologist comes in and he says hey I, I got to tell you what's happening your your baby has a perimembranous ventricular septal defect PVSD which is a small to moderate hole in the heart, but it separates the two chambers and doesn't look like there can be 
these close sometimes on their own. A lot of times they close on their own, but it takes a year, two years of life. And we're gonna see her back in a month because she's not having any symptoms. And you know, in those moments, you feel completely helpless because you look over at your wife who's holding your babe and you can't do nothing about it again. You have no control again. And your wife is crying and Meredith is crying. And I go numb. I, I called Pastor Chad that night and my wife got FaceTime and we told them. And um, I said, you know what? I don't know if I'm mad or angry or I'm just a little bit numb right now. I went back in that next day and I opened up my computer and began to look again. And I looked at that word and I looked back down at that circle wristband was my entrance. And boy, they're Nazis there. They don't let nobody anywhere in that hospital without this. And I began to think of God's perfect circle. It's comprehensive, complete. And it's spotless around my life. You can go to God with whatever is on your heart. <laughs> do whatever Jesus tells you to do. And I can relate to my Jesus like Mary related to my Jesus. And believing that something is about to happen. No matter what seasons of life we go through, difficulties we face, His love for you and for me is perfect. His circle is complete and comprehensive. And it surrounds your life. Oh, what a Savior. It causes you to bust out in song like Mary. My soul magnifies the Lord. For my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. Would you stand with me and close your eyes? Again, thanks so much for listening to this week's message. If you would like more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org. God bless you.